And she meant more to me than God. I had grown up in a Christian home. I had been taught from infancy the principles of our holy faith. But I loved that woman. And when it came right down to it, I would take that woman over God. And in a number of ways, that was made clear to me. But I was determined in my idolatry to continue to cling to her instead of God. And time went on. Uh, I went through a period where I realized that this was idolatry and I cut off the relationship. I couldn't see any other way of making it clear that uh, I loved God more. But very quickly, I was back holding, clinging to my idol. Many of you have had that experience of trying to separate yourselves from your idols and then <laughs> jumping back in with more fervor than you had before you disciplined yourself. Time went on and uh, that woman was moving out to California to go to college. And so I decided, we decided that I would precede her, that I would go out and establish a home and that after she did her pro forma thing of going to college that uh, we would then be able to be together. And so I worked at a couple of different jobs in San Diego up in L.A. And then uh, the time came for her to come out. So she came out and I was very excited. But she had decided that when she went to college that she did not want to be burdened by uh, a ne'er-do-well, long-haired hippie freak who was bouncing from job to job. So she, she, broke, she broke up with me. And that was probably the worst day of my life, other than the day my father died. And uh, I remember driving out of Westmont, where she was going to school, and I had a broken steering wheel on my red Volkswagen Bug. 1967, the first year, it was 12 volt instead of 6 volt. And... Uh, I was pounding the steering wheel and my wrist got all bloody because it kept hitting the horn thing that had broken. And I couldn't see through my tears. And I went back to the home that I was living in, which, by the way, was a Christian family that had taken me in. Um, they had also gotten me a job. And uh, I proceeded to get sick. I was sick very, very sick for a number of weeks after that. I'm not sure still what I had. All I know is that I had a low-grade fever 24 hours a day and I had to work uh, as, a, uh, as a construction helper on a construction site with the cement workers, the masons, during the day. And at night, I was the watchman on the site because it was a large construction site. I lived in a trailer. It was absolutely awful. And... Uh, I could barely get out of bed, but I had to work all day and then stay there at night. And uh, I didn't have any money to do anything else, so I went to the free clinic. And uh, they gave me some sort of antibiotic that I was on by pill for quite a while, but it didn't do anything for my sickness. And uh, finally, I went back in. I said I wasn't getting better. They told me to go into a cubicle and to lie down on the table with my pants down. Well, that's humiliating for young men. As you get older, you get used to indignities. But as a young man, there were precious few in my life that were physical like that. I was in the prime of young, studly, you know, 
So I went into that cubicle, did what they said, and the principal thing that that uh, free clinic did was give women pregnancy tests. It was always filled with women. And uh, as I was lying on that table, unthinkingly, the physician came, took the curtain, pulled it the whole way back, and was standing talking to a large group of young women. (laughs) And there I was in my glory. Now, I tell you that part of the story because it's a perfect picture of my life. There I was. And uh, things went from bad to worse. Um, Finally, one night, it came to me that I had three choices. I could kill myself, but I didn't have the courage to do that. I could live unfeelingly, you know, get an MBA. (laughs) Now, listen, I don't fault any of you with MBAs, but you understand the type, all right? I would make money, get a fast car, get a boat, and stay in Southern California where all that stuff belongs, all right, or I would bow the knee to God. Now, what did bowing the knee to God mean? Well, what it meant was that I would give him the woman. And you say, well, you didn't have her anyhow. Oh, yeah, I did. You don't have to have the woman to have the woman. She owned my heart, and I had to give my heart to God. So I got down next to my bed in that bedroom and I said to God, you can have everything. Now, when did I become a Christian? I have no clue. I'm trained in theology. I have no clue. But I know my spiritual life at that point went like this. Now, shortly after that, I was up in, uh, to show you how sanctification is progressive and often slow. Shortly after that, I was up in, in uh, Wisconsin working on an organic goat farm. And this same woman came to visit her relatives on that farm. And one night we went out and took a walk. And there was a barn. And in the barn was hay. And we ended up in the barn, in the hay, but not in the hay, all right? And we were talking, and we were not boyfriend and girlfriend, but we loved each other. And that night, I realized that it would be the work of a moment to put my arm around her, to hold her hand, to kiss her. But I also knew that the fires of hell were right next to me because I knew that if I did that, number one, I would again be taking my idol from from God and she would be the center of my heart and not God. And number two, I knew that she was in no spiritual condition to be in a relationship with me. I knew that I would be a stumbling block to her. How I ended up not that night restoring the relationship is beyond me because she was ready. 
But I had it in my mind that if I restored the relationship, no matter what it did to me, it would destroy her spiritually because our relationship would be established in sin. Do you understand that? And then I remembered my mother had told me years before when I said I love this young woman, she'd say, oh, Tim, you don't even know what love is. And that night I realized that I had learned my first lesson of love. That I was willing to give her up for the sake of her soul. That it was more important to me that she would be in heaven than that she would be my wife. And so it was no go. Now I could finish this story for you and tell you that that woman became my wife, Mary Lee. And that God gave her back to me because God often does that when you give things to God. He often delights in giving us good gifts that we desire. It's a little secret that the rebels never learn. But what I really want to do to you is I want to read again. Some of you have heard parts, some all of this story, but I want to read to you again something that happened to me in that process. And that is, as soon as I got up from my bed, giving... God, the idol of Mary Lay, God had me do something that he also had St. Augustine do. People poo-poo the idea of, you know, you open the Bible, put your finger down, whatever you read, that's God's word for you. Well, all of this is God's word for you. But, you know, God did speak to me and directed my attention to a specific place that night, a specific place. All right, and here is where he directed my attention. He pointed me to this. Psalm 128, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. What had happened that night? That night I had decided that I would fear God. You say, oh, Christians don't fear. I say, oh, baloney. And the God we fear and love embrace. They're not antithetical. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Well, think of my job at the time. I wasn't eating the fruit of my hands. My existence was just disgusting. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, powdered donuts and milk. You know, you will eat the fruit of your hands. You will be happy. Uh-huh. Right. And it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children, like olive plants around your table, behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. It was very clear to me that God was telling me that he would give me a wife who was godly, that he would give me godly children, that they would be like, that they would be like, you know, um, a basswood tree. You know, you cut down a basswood tree and it sends just hundreds of little shoots up from everywhere it comes. And, uh, and that I would live to see my children's children. 
And, you know, you think, well, that's a no-brainer. What, you know, 80 years for a woman, 78 for a man? I mean, life expectancy, it's, you know, you can expect that to be. This was a dude who one night slept on the white line on Interstate 80 all night with his head on his backpack, not off on the shoulder, on the line. Why? Because I was stoned. I spent the whole night lying on that line. Okay? And you say, well, you know, you're being melodramatic. Oh, no, I'm not. (laughs) I know what I did back then. I liked danger. And I still do. Look at how I'm preaching to you. Now, what does that have to do with our text today? Well, I want to point you to a little part of the text. I'm going to read the whole story, but then I'm going to focus on the very end. The text is Acts chapter 16. It's the Philippian jailer. Let me set the scene for you. The scene is that there's a soldier. He's Roman, and he has been given the explicit command of guarding his prisoners. In the middle of the night, there's an earthquake. The earthquake sets the prisoners free, including the two wacko Jews, some religious thing he doesn't understand. He's a military man. Military men only deal with practical things. But those prisoners are loose, and and this is bad news. Why? Well, do you remember the other case where Herod had the guards killed when they lost Peter? Do you remember that? They all died, the ones that were guarding Peter, when, when the Lord set them loose? And so this man knows that the penalty is much like a captain of a ship. Ship goes aground. doesn't matter whose fault it is. He's gone. These men this, knew that if they lost their prisoners, they'd die. And so the earthquake comes. They're busted loose from the shackles. Uh, and what does he do? Well, he's a man of honor. You know, still in parts of Asia, if you're shamed and humiliated, what you do is the honorable thing, which is you fall on your sword. And that spares you some of the shame because everybody looks at you and says, you were man enough to own up to your failures. Well, that's what this honorable soldier was about to do. He took his sword and he was about to fall on it. Now think, Paul, what does he do? Well, he sees him about to kill himself. What does he do? Well, if it had been me, I would have, you know, skipped out. I would have been gone. You know, I wouldn't have stayed. You know, he dies, that's his fault. I shouldn't have been in prison in the first place. I didn't do anything wrong. And it says that Paul, what? It says he cried out in a loud voice. He yelled, stop! Why? Because he didn't want him to die. Because he took mercy on him. He himself had been shown mercy. Shouldn't he show mercy to others? This is why it boggles my mind that this place isn't packed with unbelievers. You've been shown mercy? You don't care about your loved ones in class, in the dorm, your family. Paul took pity on him and he yelled, stop. Now, here's the really interesting part of the story. The response of that soldier is not, oh, you're here. Okay, now come on back into the prison. Okay, come into my house, you know, anywhere where I will see you and still have some control over you and, you know, It's clear that God has gotten through to him in a way that there's life before the stop and there's life after the stop. All right. What does he say? What does he say? He says, if you look at verse uh, 30, 
after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, what did he mean by that? Did he mean, what's going to keep me from paying the penalty with my life of the prisoners escaping? No, because the prisoners hadn't escaped. We're all here. All right. What must I do to be saved? You know, many of you have spent your entire life ordering your life in such a way as to not face your wickedness. You read women's magazines, you put on makeup, you, you have your whole life planned out in front of you, and it's all plastic, as plastic as your makeup is. Everything you're doing in your life is aimed at setting up a certain image. Your major, the school you go to, everything about you, that's what you're about, is controlling your life in such a way as to not be humiliated. Men, the frat you chose, the job the kind of car, how clean the car is when you show up on church on Sunday morning. Everything you do in your life is aimed at protecting your pride. And you'll never think about the fact that before a holy God, you stand hopeless. Everything you do is carefully calculated to keep you from facing the wickedness of your heart. If your wife tells you you failed her, you'll argue until you're blue in the face to protect yourself from her accusations. You will not admit one thing. How many times I've had young people say to me, I never, ever, ever, ever heard my father apologize for anything. That's the prerogative of a father. After all, what's the point of having male headship if you apologize? I thought that male headship was supposed to keep us from having to apologize. I mean, it's a joke, Right? And so you don't understand this guy. He says, what must I do to be saved? And you look at him and say, what kind of a twisted dude is that? The prisoners are there. What's he talking about getting saved for? Well, it's because in that moment, he realizes that what he was about to do, take his own life, is absolutely inconsequential compared to what would have followed, which is he would have stood before a holy God to give account for every idle word. Not to mention his endless lust, his endless greed, his endless pride, his endless duplicity, which is another word for lies. And that moment, that honest Roman, hard-nosed military man said what? How do I go to heaven? What must I do to be saved? It grieves me as I look around today to see some who are missing this week. Um, I had hoped that the Lord would speak to them through this. But some of you are here that I didn't expect to be here. And my question to you is, where is your heart? Where is your heart? You can look at me and you can think, well, it's the preacher that's paid to say this. Listen, I assure you, it is no fancy thing to be a preacher. Especially if you know how to work, which I do. You know, if you don't know how to work, being a preacher is okay. But if you know how to work, it's very humiliating. Because 
Everybody thinks of a preacher as the man you pay to be pious to prove it doesn't pay to be pious. Okay? Preachers, there's an old French saying, there are three sexes, men, women, and clergymen. You know, we're eunuchs for the kingdom. Somehow you get children out of it, but we're not sure how that works. Listen, it wouldn't matter to me one bit if I weren't paid. I would be saying this same thing to you. In fact, if you made me pay you to say this to you, I'd be happy to do that. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And that means every one of you is going to stand before the God who made you. Don't believe the lies you're told that you just evolved you know, the, the cartoon of the you know, sort of nondescript little puddles in the sand coming up out of the water and then slowly they become human feet. It is he that hath made us, and in case you didn't get it, and not we ourselves. Okay? That means evolution is not some purposeless cosmic energy, Gaia or Gaia or whatever you want to call it, that sort of like produces human beings. No, God specifically made you in his image. And one day you will stand before him and you will give an account for every thought, every idle word, everything you've ever done. Many of you have sat in churches your entire life and heard this proclaimed to you. And your heart is so proud that you will not bend the knee to God. Why? Some of you because you despise your father. Some of you because you despise your grandmother. Some of you because your wife's been harping on you. Some of you because you despise the preacher. Some of you, if you're honest, will admit it's because you despise God. Did you hear in the scripture text, every time God judged them, every time God sent them punishment, what was their response? Every single time, what did they do? They would not repent. In other words, they sat there and accused God of evil. Isn't that what we're like? Isn't that who we are? God, how could you take my child? How dare you take my child? How dare you not give me children? How dare you cause me to be divorced? I'll never forget, a young man on this campus was the leader of InterVarsity when he was here. And this young man is now significantly older than I am. His mother wanted me to talk to him when he came to town to visit. He was in town uh, recently to get a high honor from his department at the campus. The, the, the alumni of the year in that whole department. I was asking him what happened to his faith. And the man said, my wife divorced me. God should not have done that to me. God cannot be good. And this is the condition of many of you. You nurse a grudge against God. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. He is sovereign. And the day will come when you will give an account to him for your resistance, for your refusal to repent, and principally for your refusal to love his son Jesus Christ who came for sinners like you. God knows the condition of your heart. He knows your resentment. He knows your anger. And God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. 
So apparently God knows about your burden of anger and resentment and bitterness. He even knows it's directed at him. And he's a father. And he says, come to me. So here's what happened. I came. And then what did he do? He gave me my wife. And then what did he do? He gave me my children. And then what did he do? He made them love him. He made my children love him. I didn't make them. My wife didn't make them. God is sovereign and he drew their hearts to him because he had said to me that he would be a God to me and to my children. Now, this is your life. Maybe you didn't grow up in a home that had a godly father and mother like Meryl and I did. But I'm preaching. I'm your father. That's what a preacher is. He's a daddy to you. And I'm telling you, this is your God. He delights in giving good gifts to his children. I've not been looking forward to preaching this morning at all. And the reason is that I never like preaching to Americans about God delighting in working in the children of people who belong to him. Because Americans are individualists. It's so deep in our culture. But I want to I draw you in by showing you the promise God made to me when I returned, when I came home and said, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called by your name. Make me a slave in your household. And immediately, what did he say to me? He didn't just say, I'll deal with you, Tim, and, and you're, my, you know, you're my main man. You know? No, he said, I'm going to do this for you because you fear me. I'm going to give you a wife who will be fruitful, whose children will come out of her like the basswood shoots, like olive shoots around the table. And, and I'm going to give you the fruit of your labor, and I'm going to even bless you with your children's children, and you'll live to see them. And in fact, I'm going to give peace to you. Peace to my people. Peace to Zion. Peace to Jerusalem. And here I am. Every promise he made to me he has fulfilled every single one because God always fulfills his promises Satan never does you you listen to Satan Satan will have you convinced that if you stonewall God you'll come out okay has God truly said don't eat of any of the trees in the garden Satan is the father of lies. That's all he knows. He was a liar from the beginning. Satan promises you that you'll at least have a marriage, even if it is an unbeliever, and then you're miserable in that marriage and you plead for the day that you were single and waiting on God. Satan will promise you that if you turn your children into idols, at least you'll have friends in your old age and you alienate your children with your desperate clinging to them your whole life. They're your idol, not God. 
God isn't your God. Your children are your God. Everything Satan promises you, he won't give you. But every single thing that God promises you, he will always give to you. And God was pleased to give to me. God is pleased constantly to give to you as his people what? He is pleased to give you a promise what? That he will be a God to you and to your children. And so those of you who are Baptists and those of you who are Presbyterians, do you recognize that promise? He says, what must I do to be saved? And they said, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, you know that I don't believe that that means that every child of a Christian home will be saved. I told you it once. I'm telling you it again. It's not what I believe. But now, I want you to tell me whether you claim God's covenant promises for your children. I know that the Bible says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated in Romans, that they're both in the womb, that they're twins, they're both children of the covenant, one is hated by God, the other is loved. I know that. It doesn't make all our children Christians. Circumcision didn't do it. Romans says clearly, it's circumcision of the heart that counts, not of the flesh. So don't accuse me of something I don't hold to. I don't think because we baptize these children that that means God has called them as many as the Lord our God will call. Okay? How can I say it to you so that you will finally say Tim doesn't believe in baptismal regeneration? Tim doesn't think baptism saves the children. I don't. But now you have a problem. Not me, you. All right? And here's your problem. You refuse to claim God's covenant promises for your children. You refuse to acknowledge that Scripture says you and your household. Why? That's three books. But the short of it is this. The reason that you don't claim it is because you don't believe in the headship of the husband over the home. That's why. You're an American, you're a feminist American, and you really don't believe that God is pleased to work through households through the Father. That's why. And you go, <laughs> But listen, people, it's true. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The promise to Abraham was what? To him and to his descendants after him. The promise to Lydia was what? Her whole household. Lydia, a woman. She was the head of her house. The promise to Cornelius was what? Well, what was the promise to Cornelius? Let's read it. Here's the promise to Cornelius. Peter goes back to Jerusalem, reports what happened. You remember? Sees the animals coming out of heaven in the sheet. God says, don't call unclean what I've made clean. You go to the Gentiles. They're no longer unclean. I'm going to bring the gospel to the whole world. So he goes to the home of Cornelius, all right? And Cornelius says, you know, God told me through an angel you were going to come. So then Peter is involved in the baptism and the, and, and the faith and the, the conversion of that house. He goes back to Jerusalem and he says, you guys, you wouldn't believe this. You know what God's doing? Here's what happened. And he's reporting in Jerusalem. 
And he says, Acts 11:13. he Cornelius reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved. Ah, uh-uh. You and your household. You will be saved, comma, you and your household. Old Testament, New Testament. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be a God to your children. Now, many of you who are Baptist, I ask you, how did the Lord work in your life? And you say, I was the child of a Christian home. God is pleased to work in the home of those who honor him. So we as a church, some of us dedicate our children, others baptize our children, and others do neither. All out of conviction. The reason I baptize children is that I believe that that is a physical way of claiming God's covenant promise over that child. That's why I do it. Those of you who don't baptize children don't do it because you do not believe that baptism has replaced circumcision to that close degree. All right? You see the commonality, but you don't think it's this for this. Okay? Listen, I think you're wrong. But I have no problem if I see you claiming the covenant promises for your children. And if I see that all you're about is individualism, that you reject the headship of a husband over his wife, the father over his children, I say, "Uh uh-uh, your position isn't biblical. Call yourself a Baptist or Presbyterian. I don't give a rip. If a Presbyterian tells me he baptizes his children so that they'll be saved, I say, "Uh uh-uh, you have nothing to do with God or his word. If I have a Baptist tell me that his children all have to stand alone before God and that he refuses to consider his children to be covenant children because God doesn't work that way in the New Testament, I say, go back and read your Bible. This is not true. And you know, the thing I think is very interesting is those who baptize the babies and those who dedicate them and those who don't dedicate them all do something that is very, very telling. They all love to sing with their little ones. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. You see, our doctrine spills out of us if we're biblical despite ourselves. And you know what else? Baptists all teach their children to pray to God as their heavenly father. Where does that come from? God doesn't work through families on the basis of the father. How can God be their father? You know why God's their father? Because God's your father. And your children are his covenant children. And you say, well, does that mean they're saved? I say, no, because the call of God is sovereign. Jacob he loved, Esau he hated. And you say, well, what's the sense of making a promise that isn't always fulfilled? And I say, that's God's prerogative. And you say, well, it doesn't make sense. God's saying yes and no. I say, no, God can't say yes and no. He always says yes. But he says yes according to his perfect, infinite knowledge and wisdom. And you know, one of the beautiful things about that statement, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, is that it establishes a great, great intensity and zeal in you to use the secondary means. It makes you pray for your child, 
Teach your child. Read the Bible to your child. Have family devotions. Not commit adultery against your wife because of the scandal that would be to your children. And you say, oh no, it's just our love for God that causes us not to commit adultery and our love for our wife. And I say, no, no, no. Sometimes it's the fear of the destruction it would cause your children. Okay? So please, as we live together in unity, don't accuse me of thinking that a child's saved because it's baptized. It's bogus. It's just bogus. All right? It's not what I think. It's not what I believe. It's not what Scripture teaches. Jacob have loved, Esau have hated. Both circumcised. But you, don't just sing Jesus loves me. Claim the covenant promises for your children. If you don't, you are a rebel against the word of God. Claim those promises. Pray for your children. Discipline them. Love them. Give them an example of a marriage which pictures the bride of the church with her bridegroom, Christ. And if you're somebody this morning that has an idol of a woman or a man, go to God and give him Mary Lee. Because what he gives you back will be greater than you could ever believe. Could you put up the words of the final hymn, please? I want to explain to you why this is one of my favorite hymns. My other one is, uh, well, I have four or five. Um, but I'm going to tell you about two of them. One of them is, uh, um, O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. And the reason I love that hymn, O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go, is that uh, when I was growing up, my parents lost three of their children to death when they were children. Uh, one that was four and I was three to leukemia, one when I was about eight to cystic fibrosis, and then my oldest brother, Joseph Tate Bailey V, when he was 19 at Swarthmore, headed into godly mission service, and uh, it was malpractice of a hospital that killed him. A malpractice. It was the hospital's clear, culpable mistake. And... Uh, I love this hymn, uh, a love that will not let me go because of the final verse. O cross that seekest me through pain, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory, dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. And then this one, the last verse, flip it to the last, please. The last verse. Actually, if that's the last one, the next to the last one, please. Yeah, look at this. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children ne'er forsaketh. His the loving purpose solely to preserve them pure and holy. Remember I warned them that their children belong to God and that he can take them anytime he wants? 
He never forsakes our children. And again, I think this is a beautiful statement of faith to God, crying out to him to be a God to our children. So let's go ahead and sing. Let's stand and sing this closing hymn.